So it took the PC gaming world by storm after its official release in November of 2011. Minecraft was being played at such a rate that just a few years later, the owner, Marcus Person, sold the game to Microsoft for $2.5 billion. Yet, within a year of becoming this billionaire, here are a string of tweets from Marcus Person. I'm going to have them on the screen. Maybe not, but let me read them for you. There we go. So, the problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying and human interaction becomes impossible due to imbalance. Found a great girl, but she's afraid of me and my lifestyle and went to be with a normal person instead. Hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. People who made sudden success are telling me that this is normal and will pass. It's good to know. Guess I'll take a shower then. And in just a couple days after his Twitter rant, people writing him back, he says, I appreciate the well-meaning suggestions I turn to God. I'd much rather turn to Kojima. It's mind-blowing. Marcus Person, he was a regular guy, a, work, a regular working-class guy, but in a matter of moments, creating this game, he turns into a billionaire. He went from being probably an average person like me to one of the 1%. Yet the reality is, as much as our culture would like to tell us that money or riches or status buys happiness, we see in these string of tweets, it doesn't. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I was young, and I was like, man, if I ever hit the lottery, man, if I ever get a lot of money, I'm going to buy everything. I'm going to have so much fun. I'm going to buy mopeds and go-karts, buy a house full of Laffy Taffies and Reese Cups. <laughs> I was a chubby kid. Don't judge me. <laughs> um, but I'm like, man, if I get money, I'm going to do everything. I'm going to have so much fun. The culture that we live in would love to tell us that, man, if you get this status, you'll be good. But what does Marcus Person show us? He shows us that anything other than Christ will not satisfy. Any identity built other than one in Christ will fail us. And this leads us to the story of Zacchaeus. We'll see that Zacchaeus, like Marcus Person, built his own kingdom of wealth and status. However, Zacchaeus' discontentment leads him to the one true Savior. So this will bring us to the story and give us first a big picture of the gospel of Luke. The gospel of Luke, it has a number of themes sprinkled throughout its gospel. Luke likes to highlight the poor, the sick, the marginalized, and outcasts of society, and it is to those to which the kingdom of God belongs. In this, Luke wants to make it abundantly clear that Jesus did not come for the healthy, but the sick. Luke wants to drill into the mind of his readers that Jesus was not a savior of the righteous and proud, but he was a savior for all those who knew they were broken and their need of a savior. And this leads us to the story of Zacchaeus and its significance. So we'll look at the story of Zacchaeus, and I'll give you three points to kind of navigate us through the story. First, we'll look at verses 1 through 4, and that will be seeking a savior. Then we'll look at verses 5 through 7, and that will be rejoice in the call of Jesus. And then finally, we'll look at verses 8 through 10, faith at work. So seeking a savior. Verses 1 and 2, and he entered, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Who is Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus is a tax collector. Now, some of you are like, oh, I haven't grown in a church. What's a tax collector? Some of you know tax collectors in the scriptures. They don't get a good rap. 
in the scriptures, a tax collector was a Jew who worked for the Roman government to help oppress and seize possessions from their fellow Jewish brothers. There was a level of disgust for tax collectors to such a degree that even in scripture, Jesus speaking to the culture in Matthew 18, if someone does not repent in these three forms of church discipline, finally Jesus says, treat them as you would a tax collector and sinner. A tax collector had, was their own type of sinner. So the Jews, they hated these tax collectors. But maybe you're like, man, why were they so disgusted? We'll give you an image. It would be like a Jew in Nazi Germany working for Hitler to oppress other Jews. Or maybe another illustration would be American slavery. It would be like an African slave working for the slave master to oppress their fellow African slaves. Do you understand the disgust for a tax collector? They're like, yo, we're being persecuted by this Roman government, and you're working for them? You're helping these same people that are hurting us. You're working alongside the enemy to hurt your fellow Jewish brothers. Learn about Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. But not only was he a tax collector, it says that he was chief tax collector. What does this mean? The Scripture doesn't give us a clear indication of what it means by tax collector, but by chief tax collector. But what it does, it ties it to his status. He was a rich man. So Zacchaeus wasn't just your regular tax collector. He didn't come in at 9 o'clock and leave at 5. No, Zacchaeus was hungry. He wanted to be the best tax collector he could be. So he was taking everything. Why? To such a degree, he wanted to build his kingdom. He became rich. He became wealthy. So Zacchaeus is a tax collector, chief tax collector, and he's a rich man. So keeping that in mind with the gospel of Luke, it has to bring us back to chapter 18. What happens in chapter 18 of Luke? In chapter 18 of Luke, we hear about the story of a rich ruler. The rich ruler comes to Jesus, and he's like, hey, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus was like, okay, um, rich ruler, this is what you need to do. Obey the commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not kill. Don't lust. Don't do this. Don't obey. obey the Ten Commandments. And the rich young ruler, he's like, all right, Jesus, I've done all that. And Jesus is like, no, you haven't. <laughs> you ain't done that. It's impossible. But okay, Jesus plays into the narrative. He's like, okay, you did all that. That's good. Now you lack one thing. Give away all your money to the poor. And the rich young ruler is like, okay, never mind. <laughs> Forget it. It's cool, Jesus. I'm going to go somewhere else. Why? Because the rich young ruler, his heart wasn't for God. Even his so-called obedience wasn't for God. It was for the kingdom of self. Jesus presses into that. So we learn that Zacchaeus is a rich man, and this is going to play into the narrative. So the question comes back, what savior do you seek? Zacchaeus was seeking the savior in his status or his riches. But what is the savior that you seek? Is it your riches? What are you hoping will save you? Is it money? Is it status? Is it friends? Is it family? Maybe it's a good thing like a husband or wife or a child. Maybe it's something like that. What are you looking to be your savior? If it's anything other than Christ, it is idolatry. Whatever the thing that you're willing to sacrifice everything for just to have it, that's the thing that you're looking to save you. And the Bible says if it's not Jesus, it is idol worship. And Zacchaeus, he learns this. He's like, man, he knew the stuff he was seeking, his wealth, his status. It didn't satisfy. So Zacchaeus learns this, and he wants to seek a real Savior, verses 3 and 4. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead, climbed up into the tree, to the sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass his way. Zacchaeus most likely heard about Jesus. 
We think about the gospel story of Luke prior to Zacchaeus' story. We hear about Jesus healing the man with the withered hand. He heals the leper. He heals the paralyzed person. He exercises demons out of this man. And Zacchaeus, he's probably heard about all this stuff. He said, man, this Jesus is a miracle worker. This guy's phenomenal. But not only is he a miracle worker, we find out in Luke 5, Jesus goes to the house of Levi. And Levi is a tax collector. So Zacchaeus probably heard this. He's like, man, this guy is going into the house of a tax collector, and he's ministering to them. He's not like these self-righteous Pharisees that says, forget the tax collectors. He's actually ministering to them. He sees them as being created in the image of God. And he's there. He's talking to him. He's ministering to him. And Zacchaeus, is, he's like, man, okay, I got to find this Jesus. So Zacchaeus runs ahead. He climbs up in the tree in order to see Jesus. So for me, I'm thinking about this in a story. I'm like, man, so Zacchaeus is a rich guy, but he's running and climbing up a tree, and he's just doing it just to see Jesus? And I'm like, okay, hold on, Zacchaeus is short. Like me, how did he get up that tree? <laughs> Somebody probably boosted him up. He probably had the service. Like, come on, y'all, one, two, three, boom, throws you up into the tree. He's trying to get there to see him. And he's like, man, I got to see this Jesus. Why? Zacchaeus was thirsty. Now, some of y'all are like, what does thirsty mean? Well, for the younger generation, we like to use this term thirsty. Thirsty means I want something, I'm doing anything I can to get it. For example, when I was about 18, 19 years old, I was thirsty when I came to College Park and seen a lady who would become my wife. <laughs> I was like, who is that? She's beautiful, man. Oh, and she go to College Park, so you know she got to be godly. <laughs> I'm like, so I'm going to do everything I can to get in her way. I just want to put myself in a direction so when she sees me, I'm going to see her and like, hey, I was thirsty. And Zacchaeus is thirsty, but he's thirsty for Jesus. His thirst is probably a little more righteous than mine, but it's okay. <laughs> he was thirsty for Jesus. But think about this. Zacchaeus had status and wealth, yet he acts out of character. He's a rich guy, and he's running up a tree. He's thirsty for this Jesus. Man, you don't ever think about a rich person running and doing stuff like this. Why? Because they're rich. They're supposed to have everything. I mean, running to stuff, that's what regular guys like me do. I'm running late to work. I run. Why? So I don't get in trouble by my boss. I don't want Pastor Mark getting me or somebody. But that kid is a rich guy. He's running. He's running. Like, why is he doing that? Because something greater than Zacchaeus is here. Something greater than his status, something greater than his wealth has arrived, and it is Jesus. So he acts out of character and humility. Why? There's something better than Zacchaeus here. So he's running up the tree. At the end of the day, Zacchaeus learned that the stuff he was pursuing, money, riches, status, and power, it did not satisfy. The text assumes that Zacchaeus came to a place where he said, these things cannot save me or bring me lasting joy. I need something more. And if that is you today and something is pressing at your heart, you're like, I need something more. I need a real Savior. Know that this is a grace of God. God is allowing all the earthly things in your life to fail you. Why? Because it will lead you to him, the only true Savior that can satisfy every desire and everything you have. So if you're here today and you're thinking like, man... I've been seeking my riches like Zacchaeus. Or maybe it ain't riches. I've just been seeking good, good comfort. I've been wanting to be comfortable in everything I'm doing. I've been seeking a spouse. I've been speaking, seeking all these things. It's not satisfying me. That's the grace of God. God is using that to draw you to himself. He's using that so you can say, man, I need a real Savior. And this leads us to the next point. Rejoice in the call of Jesus. Verse 5 through 7, rejoice in the call of Jesus. 
And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and received him joyfully. And when they, the Pharisees, saw it, they grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Don't skip over this. Verse 5 tells us that though Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus, Jesus already knew him by name. When anyone comes to faith in Jesus, it is a direct result of him calling them by name. He did the same thing to me when I was 16 years old. I was a 16-year-old knucklehead kid. I was trying to have fun and live my best life. I was trying to do everything I could. I wanted the girls. I wanted the money. I wanted the status. I wanted to be hard. And in the midst of that, Jesus meets me. I remember like it was yesterday. I was sitting in my car. Somebody had gave me a Christian rap CD. And I'm like, Christian rap? That's corny. <laughs> I'm going to throw this in my car. I just threw it in there. But God allowed me to be broken. He let me see the stuff fell me. The stuff I was pursuing, it fell me. And in the midst of that, I'm broken. I'm like, man. I need something more. Something said, grab that little CD right there. Put the Christian rap CD in. And I'm weeping. I'm weeping. I'm crying. I understood the gospel for the first time. I understood that the stuff I was seeking, my own kingdom I was seeking, it wouldn't satisfy. But Jesus would. I learned about my sin really for the first time. I'm like, man, I'm a sinful dude, and I've done these things, and I've broken God's law. And in spite of that, this Christian rapper is saying that Jesus loves me, and he wants a relationship with me. And I'm weeping. And you could not tell me that Jesus did not call me by name. It wasn't an audible voice. Jesus didn't come through the speakers, through this Christian rapper and say, come here, Jeff Brown. It's not what he said. But I knew as an individual that God was calling me to himself. And this is the same thing that's happening with Zacchaeus. So verse 6, Zacchaeus received Jesus joyfully. Why was Zacchaeus so joyful? The same reason that any of us should be. Any Christian or any person that has a new relationship with God, it is a cause for joy. I don't care what your testimony is. You may think, man, I got a boring testimony. I just grew up in church my whole life, got saved when I was nine, and that's about it. You should be joyful. Why? You know Jesus. Or maybe you got a different story. Like Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was an outcast. He knew what it was like. He knew what the Pharisees and what the religious people said about tax collectors. So he's joyful. I don't deserve God. He wants me. And he wants to come and fellowship at my house. This Jesus, this miracle worker, wants me. He's joyful. But guess what? Not everybody's joyful. Verse 7, we see the Pharisees did not rejoice in the call of Jesus, but they grumbled at the call. These Pharisees showed that they were more worried about an image than they were a fellow sinner coming to faith. They showed that they were just as lost as that kid, but deceived themselves into believing that they were better than him. This goes back to the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. So just a chapter prior to this story of Zacchaeus, what do we hear? Jesus tells a parable. He's like, there's two men that go up to the temple. One's a Pharisee, another one's a tax collector. And what happens? Well, the Pharisee comes to the temple, and he's like, God, thank you, God. I thank you that I'm not like the rest of these sinners, like these tax collectors over here, and these adulterers, and these drunkards, these homosexuals, these whatever. God, I thank you. I'm not like them. Thank you, God. He walks away proud. And then you get on the opposite side, the tax collector walks up to the temple, and what does he do? God, I deserve nothing. I deserve nothing. God, I don't deserve to be here. He's on his face, planted. God, I don't deserve anything. But because of your mercy, because of your goodness, God, please, I just ask because of your mercy, 
What's the difference? You have the Pharisee, self-righteous, but on the opposite side, you have the tax collector, who's supposed to be the outcast, the worst sinner. They display that every Christian comes to Christ humble. So think about this. We think about Zacchaeus rejoicing in the call of Jesus. The Pharisees grumble. They do not rejoice. And you're like, man, I would never be like those Pharisees. Those Pharisees, self-righteous religious people, how could they do that? I would never be as foolish to say God shouldn't save them. But the reality is we have ideologies that produce this type of thinking. What do I mean? Think about it. Who are the people or groups of people that you think are unsavable or worse sinners than yourself? Who are the people that you think, man, they're really, really lost? Just think about it. Who are those people? Who are those people? For the Pharisees, said it was the tax collectors. But who do you think of? I mean, I think about an illustration that I want to bring up on, on, on the screen. Think about our own city. So in our own city, I was like, Google, I had a question. What comes to mind when I think about Carmel, Indiana? And Google's like, all right, cool, let me put it up here for you in images. Google brings it up. See, that's nice. You got nice houses right here. You got some mansions right here. You got the festival and stuff like that. I'm like, okay. So in my preconceived thought, this is what Carmel, Indiana is, and this is what Google thinks. But then I asked Google, I said, Google, what about east side of Indianapolis? What comes to mind, Google, when you think about east side of Indianapolis? Oh, man. Crime, drugs, shooting. You got all this brokenness. You got to look like gang stuff, accidents. Why do I bring this up? Well, we say I would never be like the Pharisees to judge somebody and say somebody's unsavable. But the reality is, even in our culture, we have a narrative of prejudging people, people who we think are unsavable and should not receive the kingdom of God. It may be like Carmel, Indiana. You may say, man, Carmel, Indiana, look at all those rich people out there, all those selfish rich people. You can't be a Christian and live in Carmel, Indiana, and maybe have a little bit of money. You can't be a real Christian and do that. You know, Jesus was poor. They should be poor. Or maybe you look at Eastside Indianapolis, and you're like, man, Eastside Indianapolis, them people's lost. Like, they jacked up down here. Look at the gangs. I've seen some of the news last week. Somebody just got shot. These people, bad. Eastside Indianapolis, man, that's bad. I, I can't go down here. So we're like, I would never be like these Pharisees. But guess what? If we do not rejoice in the call of Jesus but grumble, what does that lead to? That leads to the people we reach. We'll never want to reach somebody in Carmel, Indiana, because we have this preconceived thought about them. Or we will not go to east side of Indianapolis because we think, man, these people are unsavable. I don't want anything to do with them. I mean, somebody need to save them, but it ain't going to be me. This is the reality. This is the reality. But guess what? I know people in Cromwell, Indiana that love Jesus. People that we would look at and say they're rich. But guess what? They don't care about their riches. They care about Jesus. They use their money to love on people for the kingdom of God. On the opposite side, I know people from the east side of Indianapolis. I was born on the east side of Indianapolis. I know people on the east side of Indianapolis that love Jesus. We would look at them and say, man, how could they ever come to faith? And guess what? They're willing to do whatever they can to love on people and teach about the kingdom of God. Therefore, we have to not be like the Pharisees and grumble at who Jesus may send us to bring to the faith, but we rejoice and go to all people, all nations, that they may see the glory of who Jesus Christ is. At the heart of this thinking is a belief that Jesus isn't for everybody. Our response should always be to rejoice in the call of Jesus like Zacchaeus and unlike the grumbling of the Pharisees. 
We should see Jesus as a savior for everybody and indiscriminately share Christ and his gospel with everyone. And with that, it leads us to the final point, Zacchaeus' faith at work. So faith at work, verses 8 through 10. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Since he also is a son of Abraham, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Verse 8 tells us that Zacchaeus displayed three things. Zacchaeus displayed repentance, restitution, and resolve. First up, he displays repentance. What is repentance? Zacchaeus has turned from his way of doing things and turned to God's way of doing things. Zacchaeus shows that in his repentance, two groups of people can be saved. Who's those people? Zacchaeus is rich. Oh, and he's coming to faith in Jesus. Why? Because he's repentant. Zacchaeus is an outcast, and he's coming to Jesus. Why? Because he's repentant. Zacchaeus displaying repentance and saying, I'm through with doing it my way. I'm going to do it with God's way. If you hear and you're like, man, repentance, what does that mean? Well, it looks like this. I'm changing my mindset. I'm going to stop seeking the Savior of everything I want to seek, my riches or my kingdom, my fame, my status. I want to quit seeking that, but I want to seek Jesus instead. He has a change of mind. He says no to sin and yes to God, and it leads to his actions. It's not just a mental thought, but it produces in his actions. Zacchaeus displays repentance. But not only does he display repentance, he also displays the principle of restitution. Zacchaeus has been changed to such a degree that he's willing to give back fourfold of all that he had taken from people. This is what the Jewish law required, and Zacchaeus obeys it joyfully. Why? Because his heart desired one thing, and that was God. Zacchaeus is willing to repay all that he had stolen fourfold. I took this from this person. I taxed him for this, and I shouldn't have. I'm going to give it back to him fourfold times four. Let's, let's give it back to him. So you're like, all right, this principle of restitution. I don't understand what that looks like. Have you ever charged someone for a service at a higher rate than the services were worth because you knew you could get over? If you've done that and you're here and you're a Christian, the Bible calls you to repay that. Or maybe you've benefited from the labor of others and took money or credit for something that was not your idea. The Bible calls you to repay. Repay that. That's part of being a Christian. Or think about it another way. There's people that has literally been walking with Jesus for a year, and they're like, man, I've never stolen anything like that. I've never stolen something from somebody. That's not me. But they've been walking with Jesus for years, and they still have unpaid relational debt. What do I mean by that? Well, they probably have a spouse or kids that they've abandoned because of their own selfish ambitions. And the Bible is calling them to do what? Repay. These are your kids. This is your family. This is your friends. These are the people that God has put in your life to be used as kingdom work. They've abandoned it, and the Bible calls us to repay. I know some of y'all sitting here and y'all thinking like, man, what does that mean, repay relational debt? Let me give you an idea. So I have a friend of mine, one of my friends, real good friend of mine. His dad, about 20 years ago, 20 years ago, ran out on his family, left him and his four or five siblings, and he hasn't been back since. 
And my friend, obviously, he felt the hurt of growing up with a single mom raising four or five children by herself. Now, the Bible talks about this restitution, and when I'm relating it to this relational aspect, it says, you know what? In order for him to truly have a reconciled relationship, he has to come back into this family and give back all he had taken. And you're like, but how do you quantify that? We have no idea. I don't know. But what it looks like is that I'm willing to be all in like Zacchaeus. That's why he gave back fourfold. He probably didn't know how much he is, though. We don't give back fourfold. So relationally, come back into the life of those who you know you've gotten rid of. Maybe it's that cousin that you're like, man, I just don't want anything to do with this cousin. This cousin, man, they get on my nerves. I don't want nothing to do with them. God put them in your life for kingdom work. Come back to them and, be, and do that. Whatever you've stolen or taken, it is inherently Christian that you repay that which you have stolen in order to true, true reconciliation. This is part of the gospel. We've accrued a debt, and it was not until Jesus paid our debt that we were truly able to be made free. That is the principle of restitution. But finally, so we see Zacchaeus displays repentance, restitution, and then he displays resolve. Zacchaeus was determined to use his wealth for the kingdom of Jesus and not the kingdom of self. This is profound. Why? Zacchaeus, he gives his money, half his money, to the poor. He has a result. He's determined here. Now, why do I say that's profound? Well, you think about Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. This is written after Luke. But guess what? In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that the Spirit, what he would do, he would work in a person's life to such a degree that they would not only put off sin, they would put on righteousness. Ephesians chapter 4, 28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is exactly what Zacchaeus does. That's exactly what he's doing. He's like, it's not enough for me no longer to steal, not steal from people, but now I'm going to take the money that I do have, and I'm giving half of my stuff away to the poor. Why? He's looking to see Jesus' ministry go forth. Zacchaeus has a heart. He has a heart now. He has a resolve, a mindset. I'm doing everything for the glory of God and not for the glory of me. Zacchaeus has resolve. And Jesus, he affirms Zacchaeus' faith in verses 9 and 10. Today, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus showed that he was here to save the lost. Even those like Zacchaeus who were searching for identity and satisfaction in worldly things. So I think about my life, even in the last 10 years that I've been in ministry. Last 10 years I've been in ministry, I meet a lot of people. Like, I meet a lot of people, and, and on the forefront of my mind, I'm like, people ain't just people. They're not just numbers, somebody I won and say hello to and bye. I'm like, man, these people, everybody needs Jesus. I need Jesus. Even Christians need Jesus. So these last 10 years of my life, I've been going into ministry, and one of the things that breaks me, the thing that drives me is I know there's so many people trying to find satisfaction in things that will not satisfy they're trying to find their identity or what they're worth, like Zacchaeus, in something worldly. Maybe it's not riches. This sermon is not about money. It's not. This story is about repentance. It's about finding true satisfaction in a Savior that is glorified. So as I'm going through ministry and I'm thinking about day by day the people that I meet, I want them to know Jesus. I see so many people trying to find their worth and things that will not satisfy. And in my mind, I'm like, quit trying to find your identity and money. Jesus is better. Stop trying to find your satisfaction and partying or the next thrill. Jesus is better. The thing that you're addicted to, 
The alcohol you're drinking or the drugs you're doing, you're like, I'm going to take one more shot and I'm going to be good. It's going to numb the pain. And you wake up feeling empty. My plea is Jesus is better. He will satisfy more than anything we like to treat us as our, as our momentary satisfaction. Jesus is so much better. And you're like, what about me? I'm a Christian. I know Jesus is my ultimate. Well, think about our life today, even Christians here today. You're like, well, I, I know Jesus. I know he's better. But how does that display in my life? Well, if you're married in here and maybe you're like, man, I have unrealistic expectations of my spouse. I want my spouse to meet these expectations that nobody can meet. It is in the scriptures to tell you that guess what? Even as a Christian, you have to see Jesus as better. Your spouse will not ever satisfy. It won't. I know people that are single. I have brothers and sisters that are single. Man, I desire to be married. I desire to have this family. And I'm like, I mean, praise the Lord. I'm praying for that. And if I find somebody, I'm going to hook you up. But at the same time, I know it will not satisfy. I love my wife to death. I'm like, man, I am blessed above anything that I ever thought when it comes to finding a wife. But the reality is me and my wife, within a year of knowing each other, we're like, man, he won't satisfy and she won't satisfy. But Jesus does and he's what sustains. So I, I, I know this is hard. I know some people who may not know Jesus, you're like, all right, man, I should not find my satisfaction in these things. I should find it in Jesus. But this is hard. And if that's the case, my plea to you is to run to Christ. Don't come to Christ saying, all right, Jesus, I'm coming to you after I fix myself up because I need to get myself right before I can come to you. Zacchaeus was jacked up when he came to Jesus. And what happened? He came to Jesus and it was fixed. That's what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't just come and just say, hey, have a good time, be my friend, and go do as you do. No, Jesus comes into your life and he changes you. I think about all the time in our culture, it's like, Jesus was a friend of sinners, so I should hang out with all these people that are sinners. You should. But guess what? Jesus was about change, too. He wasn't going to leave you the same way you was. He wanted to change you. So, yeah, be friend of sinners, but call people to change. Call them to true satisfaction. Everybody is searching for significance. I think it's C.S. Lewis or one of the old heads. They said that we have a God-sized hole in our hearts, a God-sized hole. We try to fill this hole up with anything we can, with partying or Instagram snaps or people approving me here, looking for mommy and daddy's approval. We're trying to do everything we can to fill this God-sized hole, everything, but it will not satisfy. Why? Because God created you for his purposes alone. You were created for the glory of God. You were created in the image of God. What does that mean? Well, think about it like this. If you got a remote control, what was the remote control created for? It was created to change channels. If I try to use that remote control to try to dig some holes, it ain't going to work that well. Why did one it was created to do? You was created for the glory of God and for his mission. Therefore, everything you try to do, if it's not for Jesus and it's not finding your satisfaction in him, it will fail you. You will feel empty. And what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, come to me with all your brokenness all your addictions. Let me cleanse you. And I will show you that everything you're searching for, this meaning, this significance, you will find it in me. No matter what you've done, who you are, if you repent and trust in me, I am for you. I promise to you that I'm worth it and that I will, I will quench every thirst that you have. Why? Because I'm that glorious. 
And he's saying, come to me. Jesus was beaten and nailed on a cross and took upon the wrath of God and resurrected so that we could be forgiven. I talk about that debt that we accrued. We accrued a debt deserving the wrath of God. Every single person in this room, I don't care what your story is, you had a debt to God. If you ever lied before, ever stolen, ever done anything, oh man, I'm pretty good. Jesus says, that's not the truth. I love this song. It says, we say what God says about us. We accrue this debt. But what happens? Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to take this debt and I'm going to pay it for you. How does he do that? He dies on the cross. And so many people think about the cross. Okay, so maybe we're saved because these Romans nailed Jesus to the cross. Yeah, but no. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. He absorbed the punishment from his father that we could be saved. God said, I demand that this debt of sin be paid for. I cannot be righteous if I do not deal with the sin that took place. And Jesus said, I'm going to take it. I'm going to take the punishment. The punishment of sin is death. Jesus takes that death, and God is pleased with his sacrifice. And not only does he stay dead, Jesus resurrects. Now that every believer in Christ will resurrect with Jesus. Pastor Mark spent a couple minutes just praying for the people here that are going through suffering. Um, and, and I think about this satisfaction only in Christ. I mean, I've seen a lot of suffering, even in the last couple years in my family. A lot of hurt, a lot of death and pain. And my, and my, and my, and my preaching is the same. I'm like, Jesus will satisfy. How does he satisfy these broken situations like suffering and pain? Guess what? He resurrected. He resurrected, and he promised that everybody repents of their sins and turns to him. Death is not the final answer. The book of Revelation says, Brother James, Miles, good, good brother, he loves Revelation. And I do too. Why? You get to the end of Revelation, what does it say? There will be a time where there will be no more weeping, no more crying, no more death, no more hurt, no more pain, no more suffering. Jesus will wipe every tear from our eyes. We won't have to struggle with finding our identity in these other things. We won't struggle with seeking for a saving these other things. Jesus is going to wipe it all away, and that's what we see when he resurrected. So we anticipate that. We started talking about how these riches that Zacchaeus was seeking, it does not satisfy. Zacchaeus shows us that true satisfaction is found only in the risen Jesus Christ. And he was willing to give up everything, his status, his money, whatever, just so he may know Jesus. Zacchaeus showed us that when Jesus calls a sinner by name, they will come to him joyfully, giving up everything, repaying anything, because it's worth knowing Jesus more fully. And this is what the gospel does. The gospel, it will stop you in your tracks, turn you from self to God, and in effect, your life will be changed. The story of Zacchaeus answers this question. Who can be saved? Can the rich? Can the poor? Can the outcast? Can the thief? Can the adulterer? Can the liar? Can the person that seeks his own self-satisfaction? Can the knuckleheads? Can the prostitutes? Who can be saved? Jesus says, anyone who repents of their sin and trusts in me, I will save them. It ain't a possibility. He didn't say, I might save them. No, he says, if you repent and trust in me, I got you. This is the promise. 
So what I'm going to do, I'm going to pray. Um, and, and, and as I pray, maybe there's two types of people in here. Maybe we got believers like, man, this message resonates with me. There's things that I need to stop trying to find satisfaction or saving me. I know I love Jesus, but there's still things I think I'm seeking them as my Savior sometimes. I pray that God will use this in your heart. Or maybe you're on the opposite side. Maybe you're like, man, I don't even know who Jesus is from Adam. But what you're saying, it makes sense. And Jesus is feeling calling me. I know I need to leave these things and find a true Savior, but I don't even know what that looks like. Well, as we pray, think to yourself, man, God, come to me and save me. Call out to him. He is a mighty savior, and he's willing to save. And at the end of the service, Brother Mark is going to give a little instruction to be people up here to pray with you. But as I pray, think through what it looks like to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Jesus tells Zacchaeus, today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. Tomorrow's not promised. I might walk out of here right now, and as and, and, and it's, and it's ugly as it sounds, somebody could get in a car accident. Don't leave out of here not knowing Jesus. It ain't worth it. It ain't. It's not. So let us pray and let the Holy Spirit move on our hearts. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your word that is a light in a dark world. God, your word leads us to truth, and your word leads us to true satisfaction. God, I know in my own life, in my own heart, it's easy for me to want to find my worth or find my satisfactions in things other than you, whether it be ministry or people's approval. God, these things don't satisfy. Let my heart know this. Let my brothers and sisters in this room, let their hearts know this, that God, you're so much mightier. You're so much more worthy and glorious than anything we can seek. God, and I pray for those who don't know you, who don't know this truth to such a degree that they've repented, that you would save them. God, you would draw their hearts to you. God, continually let the things that they seek to save them fail them, that they may come to a true Savior, the only Savior that can save them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.